Hey everyone, welcome to the Delta Flyers. Robbie and I are super excited to have none other than our good old friend from the show that we all worked on, Ethan Phillips. Ethan, welcome once again. Ethan. Hey. Garrett and Robbie, Hi. thank you so much. How you doing? We're great. It's a pleasure to be here. Starting off right off the bat, we know Long Island, New York is your home, your original home. You grew up there. And at that time, your father was running a restaurant that his father started, Frankie and Johnny. So can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, just bring us into it when you were a kid. What was it like? Did you go to the restaurant a lot? You know, just give Did us you, a you guys, overview. Have either of you ever been to Long Island? Yes. I, I yes, have. I've mm-hmm. spent a yeah. bunch of time in Long Island. Yeah, yeah. I, thought you, I didn't know Garrett had been there. I have, um, yeah. Yeah, I grew up there in the 50s and um, in a, a middle-class uh, neighborhood. What part and of my, Long Island exactly? Nassau County. Uh-huh. So, you know, right. around there. After World War II, Nassau County had it sort of exploded. Levittown was out in maybe, was it Nassau or Suffolk? Levittown was, was Nassau County. And, it was. Uh, it just was exploding with uh, people that were working in Manhattan and wanted to live in the suburbs. Yeah. My dad commuted to work every day. He, every night. He uh, had started there as a bartender um, mm. when he was When, when was your a grandfather man. ran when the grandfather restaurant? Ran it, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And when my granddad died, um, my dad took it over. And uh, he had it till the late 80s until he sold it. It had been a speakeasy when it was first founded Crazy. by my wow. grandfather. And uh, Frankie was, Johnny was my granddad. Oh. And Frankie, Frankie was his partner. Ah, okay. And um, was Frankie, okay, so you're uh, Irish American or your your uh, grandfather? Irish, uh, yeah, Irish. Uh, it breaks down to because I did the DNA thing and I'm mostly Irish. I'm 24.2% Jewish. And a certain amount of uh, Scottish, but oh, mostly okay. Irish. Mostly okay, Irish. mostly. Um, so yeah. So Johnny was your grandfather. Who was Frankie? Was Frankie he also was partner of? Yeah, Frankie Grandpa. was another waiter there. So the guy who had owned it, uh, apparently, this is the way my dad I remember. Dad told me he fell down the stairs one night. It was like 1926, and he said, "The hell with this place. I'm done with it." My my grandfather said, "I'll give you 500 bucks for it," and he said, oh. "Sold." And so he and he got the waiter to go in with him, Frankie and Johnny. So. Oh. Um, and they kept the speakeasy going. If you came to the restaurant, you'd knock and they'd answer and they'd go, Frankie, and you had to say, and Johnny, and then they let you in. And uh, it amazing. stayed the way it was in 1926 through the entire time. It never changed. 14 tables and a little bar in the back. It well, was the hangout for for the theater people in New York. While that yeah. 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 Ethan, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I lived for years uh, when I was going to acting school and when I first started in New York. Uh, a half a block away from Frankie and Johnny's. Oh my I was God. on 45th between 8th and 9th. I was in the Whitby. Do you remember that building? Absolutely, because Frankie and Johnny's was 45th between 8th and 7th. Yeah. I know that whole block. You walk by that restaurant, Robbie, All probably the time. thousands of times to go back and there to was, your There place. was like a deli downstairs that mm. I would walk because my, my apartment was 100 Smiley's, feet from the corner. Smiley's. Exactly. I would go to Smiley's. <laughs> Frankie yep. Johnny's was right upstairs. Yeah. And you know what it I was could... before Smiley's? It was What's it was that? Child's. No, oh, I Child's I was a restaurant that. chain in the 20s, 30s, and 40s that had places all over the country. And it was it was kind of like Applebee's today or or Denny's. Mm. At Child's restaurant, it was you know cheap, good, old-fashioned meal. And it was one underneath Frankie Johnny's for a long time. Sorry, I'm going down the restaurant road of this neighborhood. Do you remember across the street from Smiley's, JR's, the bar that had the 50 cent burgers or 20, 40 cent burgers? I remember JR's? Remember Smith's? Smith. That's what I'm thinking of. Sorry. Smith's. Smith's. 
Yeah, they had Smith's. A, Smith's is what I'm. They had about. a great steam table, and you could yes. get you could go in there and get corned beef and cabbage for like a dollar oh, fifty. Enough. It was pennies. I remember this place, Jared. I would walk oh around God. the corner, and <laughs> actors went there. All the actors yeah. went oh, there because yeah, it was cheap. dirt cheap. Yeah, and you could get a cheeseburger for like fifty cents yeah. or forty five cents. I remember Barrymore's and yes. Charlie's and all those places. Charlie's. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It was an actor's heaven. And Frankie and Johnny's though was that like was, a step up. That, that was, was the Cadillac. That was the Cadillac, and I never went to Frankie and Johnny's, but the, I remember the speakeasy door because you 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 go in this little door on Forty Fifth Street. And then these super steep stairs Very steep. took you up to the corner yep. restaurant yeah. that was uh, Frankie and Johnny's. And it was tiny. It was a tiny, it was tiny place. Yeah, it's a tiny little yeah. place. It was it was a sweet place. It was covered with photos of, of stars and producers yeah. and stuff. And, and uh, the food was phenomenal. You said 14 tables, right? That's it. I, I thought it was much larger. I do well, have a question now. Yes, it's bigger now. Now it's moved to uh, yeah. now that it's moved to a different, different location. Yeah. Different um, did your father want to take? Was he actually actively like, yes, I definitely want to take this over, or was he kind of like, ah, was he kind of like, you know, maybe someone? Or do you even know this story? What could he do? It was, it was nineteen forty eight, nineteen fifty. He he already had two or three children. Uh, I was on the way, and there was another one. He, what was he going to do? He, yeah, he, he grew up in the depression. Much. This is the only real opportunity for him. So he he worked his 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 butt off there. He yeah. he just worked so hard, and I never saw him except on Sundays, which was his day off. I think part of it he liked, part of it he didn't. Mm-hmm. I think he enjoyed being a matron. He was a very friendly man who knew many many people, had many friends, mm. and I, I think part of going to that restaurant each night probably sometimes was like going to host a little party. Yeah. And mm. other times I think it was just work. But yeah. there was a lot of things to worry about as anybody who's ever worked in the restaurant business knows. Yeah. You have to worry about theft. You have to worry about the health department. You have to worry about the chef being sick. You know, I mean, it was just constantly, or did I order too much meat? We don't have enough tomatoes. Mm. You know, Yeah. all those mm. worries. I ended up working there um, in 1978. My dad uh, saw me in a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he wasn't keen on me being an actor because he knows actors and he knew how insecure actors can be because you just never know when your next job is. And yeah. he didn't want that life for his son. And, you know, he has five daughters and an actor. That was his attitude at the time. <laughs> this is not going to, this is not a good smart thing. But then he came to see me in a production of Comedy of Errors at the McCarter Theater mm-hmm. with Larry Pine and Angela Pietro Pinto and Jerry Bamman. And uh, it was a wonderful production. And he came backstage. He said, kid, you got it. You got oh. it, kid. I can oh. see that. He was an astute, he knew acting. So he said, well, you can buy the fruits and vegetables. So he bought me a van and I used to go up to the South Bronx. South Bronx back in the late 70s was like just a yeah. horrible thing. And all, all the buildings had burnt down. The buildings were all set on fire. And Oof. there's many, many people. You just Google burning in the South Bronx and you'll see videos of these vacant, vacant buildings, one after another with big black holes with the windows. Where I remember Mayor Beam, I think it was Mayor Beam, put flowers in the windows. Mm. So you drive across the cross Bronx Expressway and you look over to the South Bronx mm. and all these buildings had flowers in the windows. They were painted. Oh God. They were painted in there so they wouldn't look like what they were, which were ruins. Wow. It was really surreal. I mean, I'd get up at 3.30 in the morning and I'd drive up to the South Bronx and there was a place up there called Hunts Point, which was the size of about four or five city blocks. It was massive. Right. You know, twice the size of the Javits Center. And what it was, was 
warehouse after warehouse filled with a specific fruit or vegetable. So there would be okay. a warehouse with nothing but Crenshaw melons. Okay. And there'd be a warehouse with nothing but mushroom. And you go into this Crenshaw melon warehouse and the perfume of the melons would just completely envelop you. Mm. And I would spend like eight, $900 a couple times a week and get tomatoes and potatoes and onions and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And uh, drive back through uh, these absolutely desolate streets it was horrific uh, yeah it was this one guy goldberg sold me these mushrooms this guy goldberg and he get these big fat mushrooms and if you didn't call him at three in the morning and tell him to save you some they'd be gone when you got there at 4 a.m <laughs> so i used to call him every morning at two in the morning i'd set my little alarm and he'd get on the phone i said goldberg it's Phillips. save me seven specials done and he'd hang up he would meet all kinds of people in there he met this guy ray mccann this is when I was 16. He was the head of the Marine Engineers Benevolent Association, which was the union representing engineer workers in the Merchant Marine oh. on freighters. So McCann said to him, you know, your, your kids should go to sea. It'll make a man of them. Yeah. So the next summer, I ship out for eight months on a freighter. As a, oh, as God, a you did this. Yeah. Oh, you told me about this. You yeah. went on the Merchant Marines. I forgot so about that. We sailed around the world. We, we my first port of call was Bremerhaven. Sorry, Ethan, this is because you met somebody at that 4 a.m. market? My dad met the, this guy at the restaurant. All these people oh, come to the, the restaurant. restaurant. Okay. So he, he got friendly with this guy, Raymond McKay. Yeah. He said, yeah, send your kid to sea. You know, so at 16, man, I, with my parents' permission, I went out you on went. the SS, SS Potomac. Oh, my and, God. Uh, in fact, I remember we were at, uh, we were in Zeebrugge, Belgium. And yeah. there were... It was all, it was like 40, there's 45 crew on a big freighter like that. Yeah, yeah. There's about 12 officers and the rest are seamen. There was one other college kid whose dad got him a job too on this thing. So he and I became buds and we were standing on the shore uh, on the, uh, on the port in Zeebrugge and learned that the ship was going to Nam now uh, because Whoa. they had to pick up some ammunition. Mm. And um, the last ship that had gone through there had been blown up Ooh, and, the, wow. and, the, and the crew was a little dicey, but they also knew that they got double pay and so it was kind of it was very but we thought we, we we're not going to man we were going to jump ship until we found out it was a felony so we stayed on <laughs> and then we never went to vietnam we went to south carolina and so it was it, but for a couple of days there we're going to vietnam it was scary you know wow um he, but he would meet these people he met this guy who ran the great northern paper company yeah and uh he said yeah yeah we have this job but your son would would, would benefit from it so what was that? It's a river driver. So, so what they would do up in Maine, in northern Maine, they would cut down the trees in the winter, and mm -hmm. pull them into logs, and they put them out on the lake in Millinocket, and they float down to the dam in Millinocket and be made into paper. Yeah. But about twenty percent got caught up into the swamp grass and and the, and the rocks and everything. The shore of this huge lake just sunk. And they sent out these picking crews to pull the logs out of the rocks and the and the driftwood and everything, wow. and pull them out into the lake, and then they boom them up and bring them down. So I did that for two summers. This is all high school. This is all, this all high during school, yeah. This yeah. So this is before you were a buyer of the food and the and oh the yeah, mushrooms. this is back this in the late way before. This so, is the late sixties. Like after school in grade school, you didn't go to the restaurant and hang hang no. out after and none of that stuff. You said you no, no, you didn't no. see your dad until Sunday. That's it. Yeah. Right. I mean, you. I I know you told me one time that you would sometimes go to see a play or something on in town and then bring a friend over for yeah, dinner. Yeah, occasionally but we saw a lot of theater as children. Um, and uh, I'd invite a young lady to come with me and my dad said, well, bring her over for dinner. Right. So I'd take her to Frankie and Johnny's and uh, and and share a meal with her and then go to the play. Right. But, um, I, I, you know, it wasn't my world. It, it yeah. was um, it was his business. And, and I don't think he wanted us there a lot.
But um, he wanted you to take it over, though. I mean, oh, that that was he, his hope he, until he saw you in that play, and he says, "You got it, kid." And he knew he didn't. He, he wanted me to be like a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, people don't yeah. become actors, you know. That who becomes an actor is ridiculous. Right. right. And uh, he just thought, you know, your chances are just really, really low that you'll make a living out of it. And mm -hmm. he was right. They are but he's low. right. The chances yeah. are very low yeah. for and anyone got, to become. The three of us were, were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. We're God very lucky. Just as many people who are talented as us who could have done those jobs we did. Yes. But we were in, we had done the right sequence of things that ended us up in that place where we were seen for that role. That's exactly and, right. And uh, so it's, I always tell people it's tenacity, it's talent, but it's luck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just luck. I have so many friends who are just extraordinarily talented. Yeah, I think someone said luck is when when timing meets with preparation. Like you have to be ready for it when it happens, or else you'll miss yeah, that. Pre chance. Preparation meets opportunity. I yeah, that's what it is. Preparation yeah. meets opportunity. The waves didn't break for them like they did for others, and yeah. that's just the way it is. Yeah, it's very interesting, Ethan. I just want to ask. So, your father, where did he grow up? Because you father, grew up in like Nassau County, Levittown, Long Island, yeah. Suburbs, which, the, yeah. which was brand new suburbs. That whole experience was just evolving the idea of suburbs and living out mm -hmm. on Long Island. Before that, Before, where did your father grow up? Well, my dad was uh, born in Philly, in uh, South Philly. Mm -hmm. uh, he actually took me there once to see his house. It was a, you know, real poor, poor, poor neighborhood. His mom died during the um, Spanish flu in 1918. Wow. So wow. he didn't have a mom and his and his dad was um I don't think um you know a very present father in his life. And he grew up, I think, um with aunts and he was very circumspect. He 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 rarely talked about my mom didn't either, rarely talked about their early lives. And um hmm. so but but I know that he 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 spent time in orphanages and living with aunts and stuff and Wow. You know, Wouldn't that be uh, interesting so, if your dad met Picardo's dad, who also was in Philly at the time, Picardo's mom, right? That would be interesting be funny, if, they, yeah. if they crossed each other's paths. I think he came from a, a more middle-class background, Bob did. Okay. I'm, I'm almost positive. I don't know for a fact. My grandfather, when he was 18, uh, went to fight in World War I. Oh, my God. Uh, no. While he was there, <laughs> his wife died. Uh, he what? In, he was well, on she, duty. He was on the tour and he yes. came home and the wife had passed away. She had died during the flu. Oh, the, war oh, was oh the Spanish, the Spanish, Spanish flu. flu. Oh so, and he was gassed in Ypres, Y-P-R-E-S, Ypres, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. He was, he was, he came back. He, mustard he was, gas. Yeah. Mustard gas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. wow. And he came back and, and what, what is, here it is. It's 1920. Uh, he's a young man. Uh, he has the balls to get up and go to New York and make wow. his way in the world. Wow. And, and, and so he, he was quite a, um, you know, a determined fella. And my dad grew up under tough circumstances, and, but, but yeah, it, 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 I think he, he, he wanted that as a fallback in, in case I didn't, you know, yeah. I studied English literature and I, I was into, into things that had nothing to do with business. I, I had no business mind. I've never had a. Well, at what point did you get that acting? What when did the acting bug bite you? Or the you know, I know that you've done other things such as play instruments as well. So, what at what point in your life did you feel that I gotta get into this? When I was a kid and and I'd watch TV and I'd get scared because something was going to happen. Mm. I remember my mom telling me this is an episode of Panic. It's on I think CBS. It was an anthology series back in the fifties, and it was a very scary episode. And I started freaking out in my Remember my mom's, I was like seven, my mom's saying, no, honey, no, you don't have to worry about them. They're just pretending. 
them. What do you mean? They're, they're pretending they're being photographed for us. They're going to have a coffee break soon and then do that exact same scene again. And I went, what? This is, these are adults and they're doing this? Yes, this is how they make their living. And I went, ooh, that's pretty oh. cool. Hey, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I kind of lodged it in the back of my head. Like we'd play what we used to call cowboys. And if I got shot in the game, yeah, you know, if somebody shot me in a, I, I was done with the game. I would lay on the sidewalk for an hour and a half <laughs> dead because I was going to pretend you that I really committed. got shot. I was committed, completely you committed. committed to the game. So that, you know, I, I just, I, I just loved pretending in these, mm. in these bizarre situations because my own situation was just kind of really, you know, domestic middle-class Long Island in the fifties. Now I could be a cowboy on a, on a horse and get shot and die and be dead. <laughs> and then at the end, come back to life and go home and have dinner. When did you start playing saxophone? I want to get into your, your musical ability. In high school, you know, yeah. just going back to that time though, that, that early time in, uh, when I was working at the restaurant, that whole time in the, in the mid to late seventies, when I was in New York, I'd come down from grad school and, uh, you know, you know what it was like, Robbie, because you were there too. You weren't there. Guy. This was this. Was... I I came to New York in 1982, the okay. summer August of 1982. So New York was just beginning to start to Move. recover. Yeah, because we were I was because in the 70s when I visited was, New York, it's crazy. It was very frightening. Yeah, the some of the places mm. you know, as you came into the city through Fort Washington yeah. or. Washington it, Heights. It was, or, it was. It was a scary place. New York. It was the summer of Sam. Mm. Uh, you know, it was. It was. There were blackouts. I. I, I was living with three people in a two room yeah. apartment on Twenty Fourth and Tenth. I, I was trying to be an actor. I was waiting tables. I was working at a mental institution at night. I was cleaning toilets at this bar on Twenty Fourth and Tenth. Oh I was going God. to auditions. I was doing plays on like Avenue D. Everybody was taking classes and I thought, no, no, the thing is to, to keep doing plays. Mm -hmm, you learn mm -hmm. more on stage in one night than you do in 50 classes. So yeah. I would do all these little plays and nobody And would there come. were a million of them because everybody was fleeing New York. Garrett, I know you're a young man. You're you're <laughs> you're a young man. You don't you may not remember this. <laughs> well, and I was a young, and I was a young man when I came to New I was 17 when I came to New yeah. York City. Right. You're a boy. But but uh, yes, my first apartment was on 129th and Riverside. It was in Spanish Harlem. It was, yeah. and I would take the 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 Broadway local, the one train up to my stop, and then walk from Broadway down to Riverside past what you describe. And three out of four buildings were burned out. I would walk past all of these boarded up. You know, there was metal. They would cover the windows in metal, yeah. Yeah. and then it was all it was all graffitied. The subway Dude, I cars. I went to high school in Crown Heights. Yeah, which today you can't get an apartment for less than a million. Back mm. then you couldn't, you couldn't find the subway. Nobody had ever made it. No, you know, it, <laughs> no, it was a it, different it, city back then. It was and a totally I, different city, but there was a community. I came into the end of that. You came though, at the I, very end in '82. Yeah. What happened in '80? The stock market started to go up, and uh, things changed. Like when I was there, Times Square was. It looked like um, a war you know, the red red light section of uh, Hamburg. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just it was porn shops. Bars and hookers and yeah. junkies. And that and was junkies, 42nd yeah. Street. And nobody went there. I used to go there all yeah, the time no. because you could see you a double bill. Yeah, you wouldn't, 
you wouldn't walk between Broadway and Eighth Avenue on Forty Second without you know being in a in a group you, of people. It you, was yeah, very dangerous. Yeah, it was very. You wouldn't go into Central Park. I've got my first apartment in um, nineteen seventy eight. I finally got my own little apartment. It was a one room apartment on Eighty Third and 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 uh, Amsterdam. Okay. And mm. it, it, it had a bathroom in the hall. I sh- shared it with, there were three apartments and we all shared the same bathroom. Oh, God. It was two, it was $190 a month, oh. um, but it was my own place. Yeah. The only problem with it, there were more cockroaches there <laughs> than you could even imagine. And I used to get yeah. my dad's exterminator. This is a guy who exterminates a restaurant to come in and exterminate. It still wouldn't kill the roaches. I, wow. I'd leave and they'd say, bring back chocolate or we'll change the locks. These are the kind of cocky cockroaches they were. They were arrogant. Very arrogant. So you got there at 82, Robbie, okay? So I was a freshman at UCLA at 85. In 88, I got an American Express card. American Express card gave every every person that had a student American Express card, they gave two vouchers. These vouchers were on Continental Airlines. It was a round-trip ticket anywhere in the U.S. for $49 round-trip. That's what it was. So you get two of them. So I said, I'm going to get the most I can out of it. I'm going to go as far as I can, which will be New York City. So that was the first time I went. It was 1988. Wow. So this is six years after you got there. But I got there and I fell in love with it. So I was I like, was I, there. I was there. We were there. I, yes, you Ethan both and you were, there. were there. Both of you were there. I, I, kind of walked past, I probably walked past you guys. I did. I'm, I'm just yeah. saying it happened. But I loved it. And I used every yeah. voucher. Every year, I'd get two more vouchers. So I mm. went to New York as a college student twice a year. Um, flying for forty nine dollars. That, that's great, man. That's oh, great. Amazing. So good. You know, New York is every after New York. I always say everything else is camping out. I would yeah. never live anywhere else. Yeah, I, I, just is my favorite place in the world. I'm never going to leave it. Yeah. And um, every time you leave your apartment, there's something going on. It's always, yeah. Yeah. always exciting. Can we rewind a little bit to your bachelor's degree in English literature at BU? Mm-hmm. How did that? How did that happen? Why did you go to BU? I went to Catholic schools my whole life. High school was. Uh, 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 all boys and then i went to a, a jesuit there was a jesuit prep school and then i went to a jesuit college that, again it was all boys and I, I went to visit my buddy he was up at boston university he's one of my oldest friends and uh i couldn't believe that there were all these beautiful women everywhere and <laughs> and i thought i want to go here i'm going to this university and so i i transferred to bu do you were at the Jesuit University for one semester? One, two semesters. And then I And then you were gone. You were like, See I ya. wanted to go where there, where there were women. Well, that makes sense. It makes <laughs> Is that sense. All right? Yeah. That's okay. how I ended up there. And then wow. my subject was Latin. And uh, mm. so I had this vague idea that I might be a Latin teacher. Um, oh, but because uh, I was really good at it. I could see you doing that. It was just to, a chance to, to really oh, get away from just that kind of insulated environment yeah. uh, that I had been in for so long and, and oh, to, definitely you know open a window uh, and, and it was a beautiful place you know going to Boston University must have been like <sighs> Boston in the late 60s and early 70s dude yeah I mean it was scars and Simon and Garfunkel and yeah. English poetry and yeah. let's go listen to Bob Dylan and and uh and it was just this whole romantic kind of you know thing and yeah. uh it was just great to be part of that and it was a very political time very political and uh it, it opened my eyes to a lot of things and I, I really enjoyed it and I got into acting while I was there in a, in a serious way I was in a class where a, a guy named Vinnie Murphy came in who to this day is one of my oldest friends and he said we're doing 
Taming of the Shrew, if anybody wants to audition, come into blah, 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 blah. So my girlfriend, Sally Bowden, said to me, well, didn't you act in high school? I said, yeah. She says, you should audition. So I said, yeah, maybe I will. So I went and I auditioned for Grumio, who was uh, Petruchio's sidekick in Taming of the Shrew. And I got the part. I really had fun, you know? And, and all of a sudden, I met all these other people that were really into acting. And it was really a good production. I just knew that this was fun. And that I really enjoyed this. And, and it's like we talked about this once with Chariots of Fire, where the, where the guy says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel him smile. And that, mm. and that made me, God made me able to pretend really well. And when I do it, I hear him smile. You know, kind of silly like that. But I felt that this is my thing. And I, and I started looking around and I, and I said, I, I think I can do this. I, I, I'm pretty sure. And uh, if I don't try, I'll regret it my whole life. Yeah. And uh, and I turned out to to be cast a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was a short guy. I was in ball back then. You know, I was a character type. So that was real. That helped me back then. You know, were you sporting the long hair then? Uh, in college, I had hair down to here. Oh, that, you every, did? but everybody did back. Right. Then. Everyone had long hair then. Yeah. Yeah. We, that was that was to show you. So you're under 30, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Got um, it. What did your parents think about your long hair? They were adverse to it. They were <laughs> They were adverse to it. Oh, yeah. uh, Ethan, one other thing I forgot to bring up is when we were working on the show together, we talked a little bit about how you loved football. And this is something that Robbie and I, we both love football, but we don't typically mm. talk a lot about football because a lot of our yeah. listeners don't really follow football. But this is probably middle school and junior high. Is that yeah. right? That you're, yeah. Sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Yes. I, was a, I was a right guard and I was a monster. Right. And, uh, and also you played uh, on defense. You were at defensive end. Is that right? No, or... I just played right guard. I was oh, guard only. Offensive, offensive guard, guard only. only. Yeah. Okay. And you mauled people. I ran them over. I, yeah. I just got rid of a lot of aggression, I guess, or a lot of uh, stress. And so I just charge into somebody. Yeah. But then when I had high school, people got much bigger than me. Um, gotcha. You know, there were, there were guys there who, who were, you know, 6'2 and weighed 250 pounds. I couldn't right. compete. So that's why I went into the drama club and started yeah. Working there. Yeah. But, but uh, when you did compete, you loved it. This was something I you absolutely adored. But Do you still follow it at all? Do you once watch it? I anything? couldn't play anymore. I, I yeah. stopped following it. I, okay. I, I'm a baseball fan today. Yeah. I, I, I love baseball. I follow the Mets, even though it's it's pretty sad. It's it, is, it is sad it for the Mets right now. Yes. Oh, God almighty. How they do they played the twins last night? I didn't even want to look at the score. I didn't I, know what it was. Do you do you have a secondary team other than the Mets that you cheer for? Or is it just um, the Mets? Well, not really, no. Okay. I, I joke around, I'll say to my friends, hey, how about those Padres the other night? No, I don't follow any of them. It's just it's just the Mets. But I like referencing the others. Ethan, you remember when we were filming the show that yeah. when Robbie was just absolutely gaga over Atlanta at the time. I mean, Atlanta yeah. was, didn't they win the, the I'm sorry, they were, yeah. The Braves, didn't they, the Braves in the 90s when we made uh, the show together. They were like the Yankees. They were, they the, were the dominant team. team of right. the they were yes. a big deal. Yeah. But yet they, they couldn't deal. seem to win a world, they won one world series oh, in that decade. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, they only but won, I recall they only got at, one, but they would have the best seasons all yeah. year. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, would yeah, be yeah. dominant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I wish you baseball than when we were doing that. If you remember this, Ethan, Robbie would, uh, some of the crew guys would have the game on it and their little TVs there and Robbie would go over and watch it and see what was happening and then go back on the mm -hmm. set and act mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. So he was so invested in the Atlanta. I remember you doing that, Robbie, yeah. I was very invested in the Braves in the 90s. I was. Yeah. I remember, I've kind of moved there. my my passions to the Georgia Bulldogs football team, football. college football team. Yeah. Which oh, I've okay. been, I've been a big college football fan for the last 15, 20 years. 
Oh, I was really? always a fan, but but yeah. my my dominant passions have shifted from baseball to to college football. And to college football. Two, yeah, right. two years ago, Ethan, I when they were in the championship, I secretly bought a ticket and flew to Utah, rented a oh. car, and drove to McNeil's house. He to did. Watch he the game me. with him to surprise him. I was going. To, I was going to the post office. I pulled down the driveway, yeah. and I'm like, "Who's that creep driving back and forth in front of my house?" <laughs> Who's that creepy guy? I didn't know I didn't... what his house looked like. I, I was lost and ah, he came out. And, and, he and he came out and found him. That is funny. Yeah. Good and for he was you. Like, what are you doing here? I was like, I'm, I heard, I said, I heard there's a game on. And so oh I came to help support God. and they won. He's so I totally feel like surprised they, me. I think they he won because this... I showed up in Utah. I think that's, that's why they did. I yes. read that. I think I made Garrett go to the recycling center. It was not the post office. It was recycling. recycling I, think center, I, remember, right? I was going That's to the right. recycling center. I was like, well, I'm on my way to the recycling center. Come yeah. on, get in the car. Oh, God. But you know, the thing is, I could talk about any sport in the world as if I'm yes, completely can. knowledgeable. Because yeah. I just go, like I said, somebody goes, man, what happened last night to the, to oh. the Rockies? And I'll go, you tell me. I couldn't believe it. And then they go, well, when he struck out, and I go, he, there was no reason... And I'll just say nothing. And they'll go, yeah, but McKellen, he comes on to first. He says he shouldn't even been on first. He said, why not? And I'll go, well, what do you think? I mean, he, he, and then he go, well, he did drop the thigh. He dropped it. He it fell right out of his mitt. The guy didn't even try. So now these things, people think I saw the, the damn game. Yeah. <laughs> and I can do the same with football. Oh, God. People, I know these people on the street that think I'm a massive football fan. They'll come in and go, the Chiefs are going to have a great year. And I said, maybe. Have you looked what's on the bill? Have you seen the offense on the Bills this year? Have you seen their offense? You tell me they're not going to make mince me to the Chiefs. God bless ah. them. And then he get in. Then they give a monologue because they love to talk about it. Uh. a monologue on the Chiefs and the Bills. And I nod and interject and so I don't know who the hell the Bills are. <laughs> I don't know where they're from. I don't even. Are they lacrosse? Are they hockey? Well, I wouldn't they're even football know. And they're Buffalo. They're football. <laughs> well, there you go. I yeah, didn't even know. I that. love it. I love it. So oh you've been a God. pretender your whole life. I've always pretended. Did this come out of your acting or was this before the, your acting? Oh, God. Ah, he just the put random, the pin on. You put the on the random, random flight, flight pin. My random uh, flight Robbie's pin. Robbie's fan um, pin is on. I on used TV. to love pretending. Yeah. I mean, Did I you would do it I, as a kid, like before yes. acting. I'll tell you what happened. I, I would fall down two flights of stairs and lie there comatose. And people <laughs> would run down and go, what, what's wrong? And I woke up, I'm just kidding. And I do this. I always did this. It backfired on me really badly in 1964. Uh oh. I was I got into skateboarding. Uh -huh. I've always been into that stuff, like rock climbing and paragliding and all that. I just love doing that stuff. You skateboarded. We used to build our own. We get a piece of wood you... and we'd screw roller skate wheels on. Oh yeah. my god! And That's and how we it started. Just were nuts. You... And uh, and I was obsessed with it. And uh, one night I was uh, in front of. Jay Mettler's house. He lived two doors down from me. And I was with my friend Chuck LaBella, Jay Mettler, Mead Brown. I was hanging 10 and I went over a curb and I fell off the curb and I split my leg in half. Oh. My, 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 my whole shin just broke in half and the bottom bone on my foot popped out. Oh, God. And oh, I lay God. there screaming in oh. pain. And they didn't and believe sitting, you. No, they're laughing their asses off. Go, Phillips, this is amazing. And I'm going, I'm not kidding, guys. I really... And finally, there was a little girl in the neighborhood, Kathy Coyle. I remember her. Kathy Coyle. She's, She's like, like, his bone is sticking, out. sticking out of his foot. <laughs> well, they, I had long pants. You couldn't see it. I said, Kathy, these, they won't believe me. Please get my mom. Please. <laughs> and they got my mom. And my mom leave me right away. And they called the ambulance. And as I was being gurried into the ambulance, yeah. Chuck LaBella says, 
Phillips, I don't believe you'd go this far. This is awesome. They, <laughs> they thought you were still kidding. pretending. Oh yeah. So that's how it you, backfired on me. You're the ultimate boy who cried wolf, aren't you? I you're able ultimate, to. You were oh a born actor. Goodness. You were a born I was actor. A, I'm a born. How actor. old were you when you broke? When your leg broke like that? 14. How old was this? Fourteen. You were a teenager. Wow. Yeah, that must have been excruciating to have your. Have your, you ever broken a bone? Yeah, it's the yeah, so it's you know, so bad. Yeah, it's the worst I, pain in the world. It's yeah. really bad, but not like your. It didn't come out. I broke my wrist playing soccer actually, but I never yeah, had a bone sticking out, so it was no, coming this, out of your foot, right? It peeked out of the shin. And um and they said it, but I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks because it was a bad oh break. What your mom? What your mom say when That's she saw you? My mom fracture. started crying. Oh god! Of course, this is her baby with a broken you know, a bone yeah, coming out. Course. She's gonna exactly. cry. Oh my god! But it's all it's all healed up. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the, but your but your friends, your quote friends, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't believe it. Like, you were such a, Phillips. You're the you were funniest. such an yeah. actor. Yeah. I don't believe. I'm just Labella saying. I don't believe you'd go this far, Phillips. <laughs> And I'm still I'm still friends with Chuck to this oh, day. He oh went on to become uh, awesome. Yeah, major, what did Chuck do? Chuck uh, was uh, uh, assistant uh, DA in San Diego. He became he was once on the list to be head of FBI. He went on to become a major oh, prosecuting oh, attorney. Wow! Um, nice. But we're still close. He's a great guy. Yeah. And I'm still close with Mead. Mead was became a labor lawyer. He lives yeah. in Washington. What about lovely Miss Coyle, young Miss Coyle? What is she doing? I have no idea what happened to Kathy Coyle, you know? Oh. I was friends with her brother, older brother, Tommy, Tommy yeah. Coyle. Yeah. He was a friend of mine. That's just when I was in my teens. I don't know what happened to Tommy. Because it sounds like if Coyle didn't come out, lovely Kathy Coyle, you'd still be in that street with a broken bone. I might bone. still be I, there with yes, a broken bone. I think so. 50 <laughs> years later. Yeah, 50 years later. Like, get my mom, somebody. I never, got on, I never got on another skateboard again. Oh my God! Were you trying a jump? What were you doing when you when you broke it? I'm just trying to. I picture. had both my. I had. I was hanging ten, so I had. Yeah. Oh, oh, all both your. Yeah. The, sorry, at the at the front of the board, correct? Oh, the board. Okay. And then you you hit the what you hit. I, the, I went over the curb. Yep. And and I don't know what happened, whether the, a wheel or something, but I just I flipped over and I landed the wrong way, and my my oh, shin yeah, just yeah. split in two. It, it sounds like you somersaulted midair and landed on your I shin the wrong way, and it just snapped. I don't know what? And you and but you it, did it. You did a Joe Theismann, basically, right? Where everyone saw. Oh my oh. god! Yeah. And then Labella oh. Chuck Chuck brought me a strawberry shake when I was in the hospital, and he ended up drinking the whole thing. <laughs> Never forget that. So Good old Chucky. <laughs> all right, so all right. So, so we've established you're a great bullshitter and a great <laughs> actor, and you know when it when you're not actually performing a script, yeah. you can fake people out. Yeah. But let's yeah. talk about your creative process as an actor. Now that you're a professional card-carrying actor, you're licensed to do this for a professional. I'm licensed to do this. You're licensed to be a professional. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do try, not this, try at this at home. <laughs> you're licensed to do it professionally. What is your creative process when you first get a script or a yeah. role or a scene? It's, it's evolved. Yeah. I remember um, when I was in high school doing things like Charlie's Aunt and um, you know, the little prince and the kind of plays you did in high school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think I just, I just wanted to make people laugh. Mm -hmm. So, and I was good at telling jokes. So I would, you know, try to find the right way to say it, you know, but I, I didn't really understand what it was. And, mm. and I, I told you this story where I auditioned for the first time for a play at high school and, and the priest uh, had me read this line from uh, Macbeth and uh, which I'll say, because we're not in a theater. 
Right. And uh, he, the, the character has like only one line or very little in the fifth scene. And the man comes up to him and he says, my Lord, your son has been cut in half and lays slain on the battlefield. And my line is, he is dead then. And uh, which is a very funny line if you want to play it that way. Yeah, absolutely. But, There's so a big I, laugh I, I, there. I, yeah, yeah, a huge laugh. So I just, I said, he's dead then. And the priest went, come on, kid. This, kid, this man's son is dead. He died in battle. He's feeling pride, but he's feeling sad. There's so much he's feeling. I can't even, you got to convey some of that. And um, I was 14 and I remember thinking, oh, I just have to pretend that something bad happened to me. Yeah. So what would happen if my if my if my cat Beanie died? Yeah. Oh, I'd be so sad. Yeah. And so I kind of translated that feeling into he is dead now. Yeah. And so you just taught stepped, yourself that substitution. You just substitution yeah, didn't you know did substitution. Mm-hmm. And he stepped back and he said, "You're good, kid." Mm. And um, and that felt really good. Yeah. To know that I was good at something. Yeah. And uh, to get a pat on the back, which was yeah. wonderful. Right. And then uh, they started putting me in bigger roles and pretty soon I was getting the lead and everything. And that's all I did was trying to, to pretend like it was really happening, but I didn't have any technique or anything. And then right. when I, I met real actors, when I started working in Boston, after I got out of college, and Tim McDonough and Vinnie Murphy and a lot of these, these people, Karen Ross, they had studied it and they had, they had a technique. There's a story about Lawrence Olivier where, where he says, you know, one night he came off and he was so good. And everybody said, you were so good. He said, I know the gods are with me. And he said, but on nights they aren't, it's technique. And so I didn't really have any technique, but I learned a little technique in grad school where we would break down the script into verbs. Mm-hmm. So what am I trying to do here? Well, am I trying to seduce them? Mm-hmm. Am I trying to um, praise them? Am I trying to get something from So it become, you had a specific action to play. So now I had an action to play. Then what tactic was I going to use with that action? Was I going to do it in a friendly way? Or was I going to do it in a sinister way? You know, and I mm-hmm. had to literally think this stuff through. So I, I, I go through the script with a pen and go, yeah. I am assaulting. I am mm. backing off. I am, yeah. you know, yeah. and so I could orient myself. Yeah. And uh, and I gradually realized in rehearsal, as I rehearsed a play, I would find moments. It's like when you, when you do a rock climb, there's always one pitch that's the crux. And that's where the, the difficulty of the climb is apparent. And in a play, a play is always about the most important day in the lives of these people mm-hmm. who you're playing. That's the most important day in their lives. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's, it's not worth doing it. And it would always be a most important moment. Mm-hmm. And I would find that moment uh, through the help of the director and the other actors. And I'd practice that moment. And I'd try to make it believable as as it would be to me. I used to even do this image technique where I'd go, what if I was trying to get in, get out of East Germany and I was being spied on by the East Germans, and I had to convince them that this was what I was saying was true, so they would let me leave each. I do these games in my head, so I I, I would repeat. I do it until it it was real, mm-hmm. and then I would then that was a bolt I could put down on the stage. Okay, now I know I'm safe with that moment. Yeah, and I would put bolts down throughout the play, and I'd have six or seven bolts where I knew I where I was going. I was safe. Then was all the interstices. What can I throw away? Mm-hmm. You know, what can I do? And then gradually all this stuff goes by the wayside. You don't even think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. But but at the time, you're trying to piece together a way to approach a role. William H. Macy, he said something wonderful once. He said, you know, I go to the set and I sit around all day. And then they want me for five minutes and I have to do something magical, sexy, mysterious, funny, real, 
powerful. And until I do that, they don't get to go home. You're aware of that. You're acting something that has, there's stakes, there's stakes. Yeah. There's always stakes, you know? I just kind of waddled through it. I don't know what the hell I did. Mm. I just knew that sometimes I hit it. And when I did, I tried to remember what it was that made me hit it. Mm. Uh, but I, did, I didn't reflect on it too much. I just kept doing plays. I just kept doing plays and plays. And I did plays and plays. And I gradually learned how to edit myself up there. And I gradually mm. learned how to do a close-up on stage. And I gradually learned how to give and receive. Because it's a game. You're, I toss the ball to you. Yeah. I'm going to do you. I don't care about me. I'm going to do you. And they'll come back to me. I'm going to do you. And we're giving each other this back and forth. And, and I, always, I would find my performance in the other actor's eyes if he was, if he was there. I used, mm. Jennifer Lean used to give me that. Jen, mm. Jennifer Lean was so raw and without skin when she acted it, oh, when yeah. I had scenes with her. And, yeah. and I could find everything I needed just by looking at Jennifer. Wow. Um, it would, she would give me everything I needed. And I find that to be true. Um, pretty much so. I mean, there are sometimes you'll work with a person who is a little untutored and still doesn't know it. But but by then you have technique and you can you can get through stuff you have to do. But if you're working with the good one, you don't need you can do. A, I've done plays that have run a year, and the last performance is just as new yeah. as the first one because yeah. I'm working with people who are making it fresh every night, and they know it's the illusion of the first time. They know these people have never seen it. And I love owning it. And I love going on with it. And I've worked with actors who said, how can you do that? Who've never done, I did a movie with Joaquin Phoenix, a brilliant film actor, never done a play. He said, how do you do that? I'd go out of my mind by the third night mm. because he, he, he hadn't experienced it. But mm. I wonder what he would feel like if he actually did a play and realized that when the language is that brilliant, when you're doing Moliere or Shakespeare or something, and I mean, I don't want to sound pompous. I'm, I'm not, but there really is something incredible about these amazing playwrights. The thing that I guess I will give an opinion or a judgment about you, Ethan, <gasps> is that you really um, value the process hmm. in a way that not every actor does. I've always known this about you, that you love the process of acting. It's so the, much fun. The experience of just the magic that happens in the moment mm -hmm. and whether or not it's received with, you know, accolades, whether it's <laughs> a hit, whether I know about you, that that's not the priority, that the priority is I want to have an experience, a human experience that's real, that's authentic, that has depth and value. And, and, and I want the story to be told. I, yeah. I want the writer to experience what was in his head. Mm -hmm. It may not be what he thought when he wrote that line, but I want to give him something that he'll be equally satisfied with. That's that's very important. Uh, I want to please the writer also. It sounds like a lot of your, what you, in terms of your process was learned on the job. It was doing on plays. The yes, yes, you had uh, conservative, when you were, when you got your MFA at Cornell, yeah, you had training, scene study classes, whatever, right. stage combat movement, but Outside of that, after you got your MFA, you really didn't study with any teachers outside. You just started doing plays. Is that is I just that started doing it. Yeah. yeah. I just started doing it. And the thing that I experienced most at Cornell was not the acting classes. Mm -hmm. It was the fact that we were hired to do uh, summer stock. So each summer I would do four or five plays in rep. Yep. And throughout the year, we were always hired. We, we, we were always doing plays for the Cornell student body. Right. So I was doing classics. I was doing, you know, Shakespeare and Moliere. I was doing all the great ones. We were doing... Uh, uh, Pirandello. I mean, I was in all things I would never be cast at, playing yeah. roles that I would never be cast in. 
and I got to experience them. And yeah, so I learned doing it. I learned doing it. And it was fun. It was yeah. never work, never work. What year did you write your first, that, that one play that you wrote? Or, or is there more 19, than one play? Was it 19? several plays. That was 80, okay. 87. 87 was uh, the first one, right? Yeah. Okay. And that was a dare. I, I'd been going to uh, A Sundance. dare? Yeah. Oh, I would go to Sundance and um, they have a film program there in the summer. Mm. And they had a theater program. And they would invite young uh, playwrights. I mean, I did the very first reading, or certainly one of the first readings of Angels in America uh, mm. in 19, I don't know what it was. Up in up in Tony Kushner came there with this play that he was writing, and wow, we would we would we were there to support the writers. So I was yeah. really indoctrinated into this. You're a craftsperson, and your job is to make sure the writers that the idea that he's trying to get at the yeah. goal is sent to the audience. Right, they have to receive that. Yeah, you can't mumble it. You got to send that idea, and and so I I really wanted to make sure that the audience got it, but I didn't want to be over the top, and I have a tendency to go over the top. I'd rather go over the top than do nothing. One of my favorite actors is Jack Nicholson. Because he doesn't care. <laughs> um, he doesn't. He you know, does not. True. How was it a dare that you wrote the play? Well, how did that happen? So uh, the, the gentleman who was the artistic director of the, of the St. Anne's Theater uh, group, he said, I've been there a couple of times, he said, I, I dare you to write a one act. <laughs> I said, all right. So uh, I, I went around and I, I thought for a long time and I, I won't go into how it, I came up with the idea, but I, I came up with a pretty good idea. And I told it to a friend of mine who was a, he was a, a dramaturg, mm -hmm. um, taught dramaturgy at UCLA. And he said, that's a terrific idea, but there's no conflict. Why don't you try blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh, God, you're right. That would really, and I went home and I rewrote the whole thing in one big rush. Wow. And it was, it got best one act of the year. And that's it was awesome. Published. Wow. And, that is so but, cool. Um, you know, but I never wanted to be a writer. It was really just a dare. And then I wrote another full length that's that, that's pretty good too. But I'm not interested in writing or lighting or directing. Or I want <laughs> to just be the guy in yeah. the, on the stage. Yeah. <laughs> Passing the message on to the audience yeah, of the writer. That's who I want to be. Okay. I want to. I remember when Robbie left to direct. I remember thinking, yeah. "Be you're an actor. What the hell are yeah. you doing? What are you doing?" I couldn't man? Put, I, and then I said, "Well, now you'll be able to put yourself in all your shows." And then Robbie would never do that. I go, yeah, director, I never you, do. Why are you hiring me? Do it yourself. You get to act. My friend Robert no. Schenken, who has won a Pulitzer and a Tony and became one of the great writers who we were at Cornell together. I always, I, I did 50 plays with Robert at Cornell and he was a brilliant actor and he left it to become a writer. And I called Robert, why are you leaving to become a writer? <sighs> because he he loved writing and he was really good at it. And, and uh, but to me, it doesn't make sense. You know, you loved acting. Well, it's funny because not only Robbie, but Roxanne, too. Both of them, right after our show ended, Roxanne they just le they just left the world of acting. Has she acted at all? Oh, I don't think so. Just... Right, Robbie? So. And and she could have put herself in her own projects, I'm sure, but she didn't Absolutely. Do it. Yeah. And Robbie, you yeah. talked about that on the, that funny show, spy show you did. You talked yeah. about like, oh, yeah, I might be put in as, I might be in on that one episode or whatever as a SWAT just, guy well, or whatever, but yeah, then you didn't do it. You kept I backing always... out. Yeah. I always backed out. Yeah. yeah. What, you, just, what, what, what was it about it that that you I, decided this is not for me? I did ultimately in that in that uh, comedy spy show, yeah. I did do a a, a a very small one or two line role. Oh, you right. you um, did? Oh, yes. What, what, oh, I, I didn't, didn't know that. that. Okay. And I was stuck in a helicopter with another actor while we were lighting and getting ready to shoot. And I had asked the line producer. I said, "Hey, why don't you?" direct 
the scene since I'm going to be right. stuck here. I can't really do this right. is not a situation where I can direct and act. Mm-hmm. So why don't you just because I'm stuck in the helicopter that's <laughs> all, you know, um, yeah. yeah, tied into the logistics. So I just said to Paul, I said, you you direct this if you can. And and I was stuck in the helicopter. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking as I'm listening to the actors talking to each other and right. I was like, I would rather be out there yeah. talking to the camera theater. operator yeah. about the angle and the lens size and yeah. the, is the lighting right? And do we, right. I'd right. rather be out there because this is like the killing time in between acting right. was not interesting to me. I didn't mm-hmm. find that like, right. I, I I'm with you. Like those moments mm-hmm. when you're yeah. acting in the, you're riding the wave, you're in the scene, that experience. But in, in the world of film and television, those moments are so rare. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like yeah. Bill Macy said, you mm-hmm. know, for, for nine hours or 12 hours, the actors are mostly sitting around. Yeah. And yeah, if right. I'm going to spend nine or 12 hours on a set or whatever, 14 hours on a set, I always enjoyed feeling vital to the conversations how did the saxophone begin for you you guys don't remember the dave clark five they were the band that came right out after the beatles the beatles in 1964 played i want to hold your hand and it was a big deal and they came to america and the band that immediately followed them was not the rolling stones it wasn't the who it wasn't pink floyd it was the dave clark five from tottenham Mm -hmm. and it was a group of five men Dave Clark was the drummer, and they had a saxophone player, Denny Payton, and they had a bunch of hits, um, and pieces, bits, and glad all over, and all these wonderful kind of pop tunes, and they became yeah. a big deal. So the saxophone player, and I thought, God, that's the coolest looking instrument I've ever seen in my life. It's so sexy, so awesome. I want to play that. So my dad got me a really cheap one for like 150 bucks, and I started taking lessons, and uh, I learned how to read music, and eventually got into music theory, and I just started taking lessons every day and I, wow. I had a lesson this morning i spent my morning trying to figure out how it could get from b minor seven to d half diminished to a diminished arpeggiating them because see on a saxophone you can't play a chord yeah so so if you're going to play the c chord you have to play c e mm-hmm. g and b mm-hmm. so you know from the little you play the clarinet so yeah. we spent like we must have spent an hour and a half just doing these three chords and wow. so many different inversions. And then then we were able to plug it into Bye Bye Blackbird. So when I got to those chords in Bye Bye Blackbird, I was able to plug in these new uh riffs. This new transition, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it was so much fun. And I and I I just love doing that. And uh, but when it comes to playing in groups, I only play rock band. I will only be in a rock band because okay. as much as I love jazz it's too hard for me to do what the pros do. They, they've been playing 10,000 hours. That group that inspired you, uh, Dave Clark Five? Yeah, Dave I Clark think Five. you said they're from Tottenham. Is that what you Tottenham. said? Yeah. They oh, were. you know who's from, from Tottenham that we all know? Who? Marina Sirtis. Oh, she's from Tottenham. That's her neighborhood. Yeah. Oh, she wow. cheers for the Tottenham Hotspurs. She loves Hotspurs, that football. Yes. And that's just, that's her old stomping grounds oh, is Tottenham, goodness. which is where the Dave Clark Five are from. That's and right. that's who inspired you to go into yeah. your wow. musical career. Wow. That's insane. But now I listen to Sonny Stitt and I listen to Coltrane and I listen to Ben Webster yeah. and I listen to Michael Brecker and I listen to Buddy Tate and I listen to Gene Ammons and I listen to all these guys. And I just have so many people I listen to and I just love them. And, and uh, they floor me. They floor me at their at yeah. their at the level of craft they have. 
That's so cool. Anything else about the creative process? You know, I've written a lot about acting just for myself. Like it's a Christopher Walken quote. Hmm. The truth is good, but interesting is better. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Ellen Burstyn explains that her preparation for any role involves taking an elevator down to my inner archive where I quietly flip through the files until some memory rises up and offers itself. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and that's what we were talking about before. Yeah. You know, this is a quote from Alan Ruck. You know Alan Ruck? Yeah. yeah. We, we did a couple of movies together. He's a great guy. And he, he, yeah. he said to me once, he said, somebody asked me once, how do I choose my roles? And I was like, Meryl Streep and Brad Pitt do that. That's not how it is for the rest of us. And that's true. <laughs> we don't choose our roles. This is the Alan role comes to me, this? I'll take it. Yeah. yeah I love Alan. He's, He's great. a great guy. As you get older, you want to get back to that transcendent thing, that point where you're no longer thinking, I'm going to hit my mark now, and then she's going to say her line. You're just existing. See how close to the edge you can get. Uh, This is a very famous Mike Nichols quote. That was wonderful. Now do it as yourself. I just think that's Mike brilliant. Mike Nichols. Oh, my God. Yeah, he, yeah. he was directing I, a movie I, when we were filming in, uh, in the first season. He was directing something on the set. Was something he? on the line. Yeah. Was it, oh, wait. Wasn't that what Robin Williams, when he came over to visit our set, isn't that Mike Nichols? I could have sworn that's what it was. Yeah, but. it was It was Lakasha Paul. That's when yeah. I ran into him in the alley. We had a great moment together. Remember remember um, Brimley? What was his name? Wilford uh, Brimley. Wilford Brimley. Brimley. Yes. Uh, I wrote. This is something I wrote down. Mr. Duvall, Robert Duvall, recalled a set to, I guess, a, a kind of an altercation between Mr. Brimley and the director, Bruce Beresford, who had made a suggestion about how Mr. Brimley might play the role of Harry. And uh, Brimley goes, now, look, let me tell you something. I'm Harry. Harry's not over there. Harry's not over here. Until you fire me or get another actor, I'm Harry. And whatever I do is fine, because I'm Harry. <laughs> That's <laughs> that was great. great. Uh, uh, this is Chris Plummer. Don't study your lines. Read the play. Read the play. Read the play over and over and over again. You learn the play. Learn the, and that's what I've, I I memorized the whole play when I'm in a play. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you've said that before. I memorized the whole play. So Everything. Everyone's roles. Wow. I know. Yeah. Why that not? Makes sense. Yeah. You're going to live in that world. You better know it. You know, you learn more about what other characters say about you. Yes. Whatever. That's a very important thing. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I used to, it, what you're reading from reminds me when I first started directing, I had one page on a word processor yeah. that I would keep all my thoughts and ideas right. and I'd print it out and put it in my script at the very front. Right. When I was directing, it was like just shorthand. It was thoughts. Right. It was yeah. it was, right. it was filled yeah. with things like do it wrong. Let's try it wrong one time. Or, you mm-hmm. know, it was just short, short yeah. ideas that I'd picked up about directing that I could share with actors when we got into a, a moment where the scene wasn't working or they yeah, yeah. tell they weren't feeling satisfied. It was just right. things to remind myself to like suggest or say. And, and I, I think to that's think really, outside the box, really yeah. to think outside yeah. the box. Yeah, I mean, I would have a monologue, a very sad monologue, and I and I'd say I'm going to do it like a stand-up, you know, right? And do the whole do it wrong. To, Try it wrong. Do it wrong. Yeah. Do it wrong. And I think that's, I love a, it. that's a that's a great. it's just care enough not to care you know Mm -hmm. so much you know i love that you have that collection that's so cool it's great for people who are looking to be creative in in whatever field to keep a bit of a journal of things that inspire you and because it's easy to forget when you're stuck in the in the process of trying to you know prepare for a role or a play or a a shoot Mm -hmm. it's easy to forget the things that really 
registered for you at some point in your career? Meryl Streep. I think the most liberating thing I did early on was to free myself from any concern with my looks as they mm. pertain to my work. Mm. That's a very smart, smart thing. Very smart. Yeah. Well, uh, you two have inspired me to start making lists of, uh, on my own. I think that's a, a great journal. idea. Even yeah, a little if journal. If it's one page, if it's mm -hmm. a whole a whole journal of a yeah. whole little you I know, agree. Pri private kind of collection of, of inspiration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. this, this is George M. Cohen, which he said to Spencer Tracy, whatever you do, kid, always serve it with a little dressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. these, these people said just amazing things. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for yeah, sharing man. your process, your creative process, these amazing stories. All right, everyone. We were uh, so lucky to have Ethan Phillips joining us once again. And thank you again, Ethan. And for those of you who are Patreon patrons, please stay tuned for your bonus material. Everyone else, <laughs> we'll see you next week with another uh, another episode. But once again, thank you, Ethan. Thanks for being here. Thank you, sir.